one of the Bibles that you grabbed on the table as you walked in the theater. You find it on page 585. And as you open it up to John 13, if you'd all rise to your feet, I'm going to read verses 31 through 38 over us this morning. John 13, starting in verse 31. This is what God's word says. It says, when he had gone out, referring to Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It's God's word. You can be seated. Thank you. <coughs> I love um, Laughing Planet. Uh, I love Yumbles, too. Uh, I love baseball. I love trees. I love coffee. I love roasting coffee. I love freshly mowed grass. I love music. I love the cello. I love the mountains. I love English culture. I'd go to the UK if I could, right? I love turkey. Not the animal meat, but the country, okay? I love Levi's. I love Sperry's. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love sunny days. I love overcast days. I love eight ounce coffee mugs. I love G2 ballpoint pens. I love Disneyland. I love water parks. I love stories of hope. I love watching people advocate and fight for social justice. I love hoodies. I love books. I love hot tubs and saunas. I love watching people come alive and put their faith in Jesus. I love grace. I love the church. I love beaver basketball. Yesterday was sad. And I love Jesus. With all that said, uh, what in the heck does love really mean? Uh, if you're anything like me, the word love gets thrown around a lot. So we, we use it in the same sentence where we describe uh, a coffee mug and the amount of ounces that can go into that mug all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we talk about people like Jesus and our spouses or something. Honestly, the only time that I never threw around the word love I felt like was in my relationship uh, with Liz, my wife. I, I waited over a year to tell my wife, Elizabeth, when we were dating that I loved her, okay? And, and I'll just be completely honest with you. In a real way, I knew that I loved Liz from the moment I saw her, okay? And you could moan and bark about that, but it's actually really true, okay? Um, but I didn't want to be flippant. I wanted to be sure that I was going to use it appropriately, that I wasn't going to abuse the word, and the day came. I took her on a date to San Diego. 
We went and saw one of our favorite bands, Nickel Creek and the House of Blues. It was perfect. Okay, we went over to Coronado Island afterwards, and we're sitting in front of the San Diego skyline, and it's gorgeous. And I look at her, and I say, Liz, Liz, I love you. And she looked at me, and she said, thank you. Right? <laughs> I actually don't know if she even was grateful for it. I, I don't know what she said. She didn't say, I love you back. I remember that, okay? She maybe just awkwardly hugged me. I don't remember, but I like to think she at least, you know, was grateful. Um, but it wasn't for another three to four weeks, actually, uh, when we were up in Portland, and she took me out on a date, and she took me to Mount Tabor for the first time. And she looked at me, and she said, Josh, I love you. And I'll always remember that because I know how seriously she meant those words to me. She didn't throw that word around, okay? But let me tell you something. I said those words to her, I love you, a little over 12 years ago now on Coronado, and I meant them. I felt them. But since that day, it's actually my actions that are going to define what that even means, as I live with her on a daily basis, I get to now show her what that love is supposed to look like. And this morning, I, I want to talk about love. Okay? But our passage not only talks about love, it actually defines love. And it not only defines love, but it tells us that love should define us. It not only defines love, but it tells us that love should define us. The first thing I want us to see is the answer to this amazing question, and this question is this, what makes God glorious? What makes him glorious? And you see this in verses 31 through 33. So we saw when Judas departs, he leaves the scene. If you're here last week, we talked about this. We are shown that Jesus knows that the clock is ticking on his life. And so Judas, Judas is leaving. Jesus knows it means that, that soon Judas is going to return and Judas is going to betray him, which will lead to Jesus' trial. It's going to lead to Jesus' torture and his death. And so we see here that Jesus addresses his disciples in this very intimate kind of way, calling them little children. And that's not Jesus, you know, dissing on the disciples, being like, oh, you poor little babies. You know, that's not what he's doing. Instead, Jesus is communicating that he's approaching them in this moment, at the end of his life, as a father would approach his children. In, in a sort of parental way. And, and you all know this, even though none of us technically are at the spot yet, but you know that when you only have moments left in your life to live, you don't just chat with people about the weather. You know, you don't talk to people about, you know, how beaver basketball is going or something. You don't talk to them about, you know, the new outfit you just grabbed, you know, or uh, the technology you want to buy. You talk to people about the most important things in your life, what's really on your heart. And we see here that Jesus, in his final moments, he turns his attention in these final moments to talk about glory. He talks about glory. I'm just going to read part of it again in, in verse 31. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. All right, we modern people, I think we struggle often with this concept of glory. If you're anything like me, it doesn't really translate in a very concrete way uh, to most of us. When we use the word, it kind of, we kind of feel it in an intuitive way. When I say the glory of God, you kind of feel that. You're like, yeah, I get that. You know? But intellectually, we struggle with it. 
It's not the same as saying the love of God or the grace of God. Even that can feel abstract, but in a sense, it's a little more concrete than just the general term glory of God, right? But I I think it's really important to see that our word glory, we get from the Greek word doxa. This will be on the screen. Um, this this, This is where we get our word doxology from. If you've been in the church long enough, you've sang the doxology song potentially, but this is what this word means. It communicates either two things. Generally, that something is of great worth and great value, or it could communicate that something is beautiful, right? So the idea of glory is that something or someone has tremendous worth. It has tremendous value. It has this weightiness and this beauty. And here, Jesus says, now, now I am glorified. What is Jesus talking about? What do you mean now, Jesus? Like right now? Like right now, right now. Uh, We get a window into what Jesus is talking about when we see, I just read the line again for you, we see that where he is going, no one can follow him. What's he getting at? Well, where is that? Well, he's referring to his death, his death on a cross. Jesus, guys, Jesus is saying that his death is bringing greater definition to God's glory. That his death is going to be this event, this moment that displays the glory of God. That his death will glorify God and his death will glorify himself. That Jesus is going to be glorified and that God is going to be glorified through his death. That is a little puzzling, isn't it? That's kind of a little puzzling and and this is why. Um, uh, My wife and I just this last week, we started watching the Netflix show The Crown Okay, I know we're probably really behind on this, and we're really not far into it all, but watching this just a little bit this week, I think, gives greater definition to our definition of glory and how we struggle marrying that with what Jesus is talking about. Because in the show The Crown, you don't get very far into it, and if you know your history, you know the story as well. Uh, King George, who Queen Elizabeth, uh, who's Queen Elizabeth's father, uh, he dies, And uh, there's this amazing scene. It's really well done. She's in Africa, and she's flying back to the UK to take the throne. And she looks wonderful, right? She looks royal, except she's wearing all black, okay? And she returns, and she's in all of her, like, regal garb, you know, her regalness. You know, her glory is basically on display. There's so much honor as she's walking through, you know, the house and everything. And her mother and her grandmother approach her, and they both bow to her. It's this really uh, powerful moment. It's beautiful and it's grand. And in that moment, you see her honor, you see her glory, and that makes sense to us. Things like that make sense to us. We, we look at that and we're like, yeah, that's dignity, that's worth, that's beauty, that's honor. But the cross? That doesn't work with my definition. You see, Jesus didn't die, you guys, like Socrates did, you know, sipping hemlock with his disciples. That's not how he died. He died brutally. He died a humiliating death on a cross. If you don't know this, when you hung on a cross and died, you were stripped completely naked. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It was exposing. His face was beaten out of recognition. Isaiah 53 says you couldn't even recognize him. Jesus wasn't cheered on when he was dying. You know, he was jeered at. I mean, think about this. Think about that. If glory is beauty, and if you saw Jesus dying on a cross, if you could have been there, guys, if you could truly have seen Jesus dying on the cross, if if I could truly have seen him dying on the cross, we wouldn't feel this sense of, whoa, beautiful. We'd all want to puke our guts out. 
I mean, that would be the urge we would have. But if glory is supposed to be beauty, but being the scene of the cross would be some place where we just want to puke, or if glory communicates power and honor, and yet here Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross, I mean, that's a sign of weakness, not strength, right? Yet he says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Uh, this will be on the screen, D.A. Carson said about this verse, he said, the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. Uh, a lot of times uh, we've sung this song by King's Kaleidoscope in our, our gatherings, it's a song called Fix My Eyes. And there's a line in there that says, I survey the glory of your agony. I survey the glory of your agony. And I once had somebody actually pull me aside after a gathering. He said he had a hard time singing that line. And he's like, how in the world is that glorious? I don't even get it. Right? How in the world does a humiliating act of sacrifice glorify Jesus? How does this bring the greatest glory to God? Well, it's because the cross, you guys, it showed the glory of so many of God's attributes, all in one act. And because of uh, the sake of context and for because of the sake of time, I want you to see this morning that the cross showed the glory of God's love. In the cross, you see the display, the fullest display of God's love, and that just magnifies his glory. You see, when I say to you guys this morning, when I say God is love, that is a, that's a proposition that you can believe or not believe. You could believe that, right? You can intellectually say, I know that, all right? But when you see God actually willing to come to earth, and you see God willing to go to the cross and to die for us, the love of God, it shines out from his life in a completely different way than if you were just to say it. It shines out. It's glorious. It's kind of like me looking at Liz on that day in Coronado and saying, I love you. Right, she, can, she can believe that as, the, as a proposition, right? She can, she can believe that, right? And, and feel that in a, in a real way, but I actually can display the glory of my love through her by my actions day in and day out. It puts my love on, on a greater display. You see, guys, in the cross of Jesus, the love of God puts on full display the glory of God. Well, what makes God glorious? Well, it's the cross. Why? Because in the cross of Jesus, we see on full display the love of God. But then Jesus continues on in verses 34 through 35, and he not only says that in the cross we see the love of God defined, but we see that this love should actually define us. This is the second thing we see. We see the answer to this question, what proves that we are God's? Look, at me in, look with me in verse 34. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus states here that he's giving us a new commandment. Well, what makes this so new? If you've read your Bible, this feels really familiar, uh, because like in places like Leviticus 19, you see God tell his people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God has always told his people to love one another. And so for ages, God's people have been believing this and trying to live this out in some way. So what makes this so new? Why does Jesus say this is new? Well, what makes this commandment from Jesus new is the standard by which we are to love each other. 
See, previously, we are told to love each other just like we love ourselves. Basically, it's the old truism, right? Like, treat others the way you want to be treated. But here, Jesus is pressing deeper. He's bringing a greater standard, not even a greater standard. He's bringing greater definition to this command to love one another because he defines love for us here. And he says we are to love each other the way that he has loved us. So the standard now that the love by which we're supposed to treat each other is no longer ourselves. We aren't the standard anymore. The standard is Jesus. The definition isn't us. It's Jesus. He says we are to love each other just as he has loved us. Well, how has he loved us? We must look to the cross of Jesus, to the place he went where no one else could go. It's the place of death. I mean, do you see this? Jesus defines love for us, and it is the exact opposite definition of our modern definitions. It's the exact opposite. This will be on the screen for you. I try to put into words here the world's definition of love and what we are currently working with. And you might find yourself living in this space where your working definition of love is. The world's working definition of love so often in our day and our time is this. It's just affirming the desires and the actions of other people. So you love other people, and the way that you love other people is by affirming them, both their desires that they have and their actions that they have. And that person will feel like you love them if you affirm them. Okay? Or it's, it's just the general idea of adoring somebody else as they meet your needs. And so we love people because we want something from them in a real sense. It might feel like romantic love, but we just maybe really like the way that person makes us feel. And so this is great, and this love is working out as long as you're meeting my needs. It's basically this idea, this definition of I love you if you do this. I love you if sort of stuff. If you affirm me, if you meet my needs. But Jesus' working definition of love that we see here in this passage is very different because it's laying down your life for other people. It's, it's death to self. That is his definition of love. It's I love you, period. It doesn't say you have to affirm me or you have to meet my needs. And the reason is because I've already died to myself and now I can love you for the sake of loving you and your own flourishing. See, love isn't asking, what does my heart want? If, if you love me, you'll, you'll let me have it, you know? And, and I'll love you back, okay? Jesus' love is asking, in what ways can I die so that you can more fully live? It's a radically different definition of love. And people who have truly seen and beheld the glory of God's love in the cross, Jesus tells us here, we are marked a certain way by that. That God defines love, but then when we see that love defined in the cross, Jesus says, it will define you, guys. This is the mark. This is what should define us. And this is what actually proves that we are even God's. Right? This, this might seem sort of counterintuitive to us, honestly. It might not be the first thing that we think of as what should define us or what would actually prove that we are God's. It might not be how you think you would discover if someone is a part of Jesus' community or not. But it, Jesus says here it's how the world will know. Okay? Um, my daughter Isla is 10 months old today. All right? Happy birthday, Isla, on your month's 10-month birthday. All right? So... Um, 
but she's in that um, adorable yet frustrating stage of being a baby where she's just crawling around everywhere and any tiny little thing on the floor, uh, she's just going to grab and, and shove it in her mouth. And so you're constantly like, what is in your mouth? What are you eating? You know, why are you putting that in your mouth? It could be the largest object in the world to the smallest object in the world. She just grabs everything, shoves it in her mouth, just like every baby did, just like you did at one point, right? You used to be that way. You were weird, okay? And she just shoves it in her mouth. And what these babies are trying to do is they're maybe, I don't know, teething, who knows, but they're trying to discover life. And for them, this way of putting stuff in your mouth is a way to discover what this thing maybe is, right? But we don't do that anymore, do we? That's not how we discover what something is. That's not how we identify what that thing is now. We've advanced beyond that now to other senses, mainly sight, right? So if you walked in this room this morning and you saw a theater chair there and you looked at it, you would look at it with your eyes and you go, that is a chair, right? But if you walked over there and you started putting your mouth around the chair, you know, and licking it and chewing on it a little bit, right? Uh, you probably are going to be sick all week because these are theater chairs. I don't know how often they clean them. Um, I'm sure they're fine. But uh, if you were doing that, right, like we would all look at you like, man, you are not a mature person, right? You're not where you should be, right? That you, we, we should have progressed beyond that. That's not how we discover what something is. It's not the primary way that we, we know that. We commonly know things now through sight, okay? But there are other things that we most commonly look to, I think, to discover who is in the community of Jesus. And it's kind of like uh, a less mature way is what Jesus would say to us. We might think, well, a person is, a, you know, in the community of Jesus if they've said they're a Christian. So they said they're a Christian, and so therefore they're in, right? Or this person prayed a prayer, so therefore they're, they are a Christian, right? Those are fine things, but, but if that's where we stop in our discovery, it's like shoving things into our mouths as adults to discover it. It's not advanced enough according to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't say people will know that you're mine by your commitment and devotion to the scriptures. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say people will know you're mine by your commitment to prayer or by how much you fat, how well you fast this week, right? You, people will know you're mine by your moral conduct or how frequently you share the gospel or what is your doctrine or what are your creeds, right? Those are all necessary things. Those are all really good things, but they aren't the defining mark. Because what Jesus says is the true way to discover, the most true and mature way is to see that people will know that you are mine if, there's the condition, if you love each other according to my definition of love, the way that I have loved you. Uh, Francis Schaeffer once said of this verse, that this is the final apologetic. If you know anything about Francis Schaeffer, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a great apologist in many ways. And he says the ultimate apologetic is not just being right in your arguments, defending Christianity, but he said our ultimate apologetic is our love for one another. Jesus is saying, guys, that the world should look inside the Christian community and see astonishing love. Love that they have a trouble just accounting for. Like, where does that come from kind of stuff? They shouldn't look in and see us just biting one another and gossiping and, and complaining about each other, distancing ourselves from one another, destroying one another. They shouldn't see us as the place that is the most segregated place, according to 
race or social class in our societies. But the world should look in on the community of Jesus and say, look at how they love each other. I, I have not seen love quite like that. I mean, do you see how radical this is? Do you see how radical this is being presented towards you this morning? Think about this. Jesus isn't calling us into a life where we just love other Christians who voted like we did or, or dress like we do or enjoy the same exact things that we do or culturally fit into our lives seamlessly. It's not just the people that are easy to love. Meaning like you look around in a, a community of faith like this and you go, oh, you're a student? I'm a student. Okay. We can love each other. Oh, um, you're single? I'm single. Yeah, let's love each other. You know, or you're a young married couple? Yeah, not in that way, I guess. But um, <laughs> that backfired, okay? But you know, you're... Um, you're a young married couple, we're a young married couple, you know? Oh, you have kids, we have kids. That's great, love each other, right? But that's not that radical. That's what we do all the time. Just saying, I mean, loving people who are not like you, that don't just fit into your life seamlessly. We are called to love all Christians like Jesus has loved us, not by just merely putting up with other people, but actually laying down our lives for them, death to self sort of stuff for the sake of other people. And if that feels challenging, that's because it is. I'm sure that right now, I mean, when we're reading this and we're saying stuff like this, and I say these words, I think many of us are probably, if you're like me, you're struggling inside with a little bit of doubt, you know, a little bit of pushback. And you're like, well, come on. I mean, really, like lay down my life for, for someone who voted differently than me? Like, they're crazy, right? Like, how in the world could I even stand that person, let alone lay my life down for them? Or, or really lay down my life and love someone who has really different beliefs than I do in some ways? Like, can you believe they believe that? Like, I could prove from Scripture so easily how that is not true, right? I mean, they're just so wrong. I mean, love someone that's more liberal than I am or love someone that's more conservative than I am or, I mean, you fill in the blank. I mean, you internally push back, like, I don't know if Jesus would really do that. I mean, I don't know if he'd really call me to that. I mean, obviously, my viewpoint is the right viewpoint, and I have good reasons, and I could point to Scripture to prove it. I'm sorry, but I just can't associate with those people, let alone lay my life down for them, die to myself kind of stuff, because I'm right. I'm sorry to tell you guys, there's no caveats in this verse. None. There's no excuses to be made. None. I mean, just look at Jesus if you need some help. He laid down his life for you. I mean, when you had very different moral values than him, he died to himself. When you had really different standards than him, he died to himself. When you've been more conservative than he was, he still loved you. When you were more liberal than him, he still loved you. When you were very culturally different than he did, he still laid down his life for you. And when you were definitely a different social class than he was, I mean, he was God. And yet he still died for you. And yet, guys, he loved you. Let me just say, Jesus has loved even that person that you're thinking of in your mind who's a Christian. You're like, I can't possibly love them. He died for them too. He laid down his life for them. And seeing that will bring great conviction upon our hearts to follow in his footsteps. So, so what if, if this is kind of compelling to you this morning and you're just like, yeah, let's do this, you know? 
and um, you're like, I'm going to do that this week. It's going to be amazing. I'm even fasting this week. It's going to be an awesome week. I'm going to love people so well. And then you get into Monday, just tomorrow, and the energy just kind of falls off, right? And someone hurts you again, and you're like, no way, I can't do it. Like, what do you do then? Like, how is this even sustainable? I was thinking this week about this, how a lot of us, if you're like me, will go into this week sort of like this. Um, when I was in college, we lived in Riverside, California, which is like central to going everywhere. And me and my friends, we would do really dumb things. And uh, one night we're like, let's go to Vegas, right? And we were like these, we were pretty good Christian guys. Like, I don't know what we were going to do in Vegas. But we were like, let's go to Vegas. And um, we're like, yeah, let's go to Vegas. And our friend Ben Roberts, we're like, Ben, you drive. And he's like, I don't want to drive. You're all going to fall asleep. And we're like, no, 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 Ben, we'll stay awake. We'll stay awake. And we got like halfway to Vegas. And we're like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? And we all slept. And Ben was really mad at us. And... Um, we just, that can't sustain you, right? You can get really excited about something and then halfway through you're like, what was I thinking? This is hard, you know, or this is really dumb. I want to be in my bed, right? In the same way, like, how do we approach this idea of love in a way that isn't like this Las Vegas trip, you know? But where really it can sustain you day in and day out. What will empower you to love like Jesus every day? I think you begin to see this in verse 36. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Kind of like a, it's like a Vegas statement, right? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus says to Peter, you cannot follow him. He cannot follow you in, his in your own death on the cross. But afterwards, he says to Peter, you will follow me. And what he's telling him is you will follow me in this sort of death to self kind of thing. But then Peter, being kind of dense, and he picks up on these words of Jesus, and he, um, he maybe realizes it more than we realize, but he says, yeah, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Like, he's ready to go, you know. Like, it's Sunday. Monday hasn't come yet. And, and basically, it's this, Jesus, I love you so much, I will die for you. And this is great, Right? But that's not going to be the immediate story of Peter, which is what Jesus tells Peter next. What does Jesus say? He says, will you really? Actually, Peter, you're going to deny me. Uh, while I'm loving you in my death, uh, you will claim that you don't even know me. See, Jesus is going to lay down his life for Peter in love, and Peter's response will be abandonment, denial. And how will Jesus respond? I think this is how this power really comes in. Uh, if you were to read the final chapter, John chapter 21, you'll see the end of the story picks up there again. We're not going to read it this morning. But you'll see Jesus' response to Peter after his denial. And you see Jesus, he lights this charcoal fire for him, which is interesting. Because Peter claims that he doesn't know Jesus, and when he does that, he's around a charcoal fire. And so Jesus lights this charcoal fire, and, and you can kind of imagine, basically, him and Peter just around this fire all alone, and those scents and those smells are probably triggering these memories of denial that Peter had for Jesus in Peter's own mind. And what does Jesus do in that moment? When he comes to Peter, what does he do? Well, I can tell you what I would have done. I'll be really honest with you. I have this flaw in my life. It's the um, I told you so flaw, okay? Uh, I don't like it, um, but it's the flaw where if if, someone's, if I'm like, hey, it's got to go this way, and someone's like, oh, I'll do it, don't worry about it, and then it doesn't happen, I just go internally, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so annoying, I told you so, you know? 
And this happens all the time in my parenting as well. And just a quick example, we were at Home Depot the other day um, looking at like a, a range. And uh, our kids were going crazy. You shouldn't bring four kids to Home Depot. And um, uh, they were playing on these like pillar things. And we're like, you need to stop doing that. You're going to get hurt. This isn't a playground. You know, all the classic parent stuff. And my daughter is like, I won't. We won't. We'll stop. You know, kind of thing. And no joke, 30 seconds later, we hear this bang. We hear this crying. I look over. She like really hurt herself. Okay. And, um, and uh, I thought in my mind, I'll just be honest with you. I was just like, you deserve that. You know, <laughs> serves you right, you know. I distanced myself, embarrassingly. I did. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe you. I just told you that, you know, I told you so. I promised you would do this. But then I, I thought of Jesus. I really did. I thought of Jesus, and I thought of Peter specifically, and it began to change me. Because Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I told you so. I told you that you would do this. I warned you. You said you would die for me, and yet you abandoned me. Explain yourself. I go and die for you, and you can't even claim to know me? I mean, who are you? After all I've done for you. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, what? Of course I do. Jesus says, feed my people, feed my followers, which in essence at the core of that is the command of Jesus to Peter, love my people, then love my people. See, Jesus said Peter would deny him and Peter didn't listen. He didn't believe Jesus and Jesus' response to Peter was he loved him. He came, he came close to Peter. He drew near to Peter, to the one who abandoned him. But then I thought about how often God tells me to do something in that moment of Home Depot, and I promise him, sure, I'm going to do that. Of course, I'm going to do that. And then I fall, and still God draws near to me daily, daily. Guys, it's coming full circle. Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Peter says, yes. Jesus says, go and love my people. It's the same thing you see happening here. In the last chapter of John's gospel, we see that the cross wasn't the final expression of Jesus' love. It was the ultimate expression, yes, but it wasn't the final expression of God's love. It wasn't. And Peter gets to experience the ongoing love of Jesus in the midst of his sin. Yes, he gets to look back at the cross and see the greatest display of God's glory ever, but he gets to experience that love in an ongoing sort of basis in that moment. He betrayed Jesus, and yet he gets to experience the love of Jesus once again. Jesus doesn't destroy him. He doesn't abandon him in order to get back at him. Jesus restores Peter. And this is Jesus' heart for us this morning. That when, when you abandon him and when you deny him and, and when you make empty promises towards him, he moves towards you and desires to restore you. Guys, this is the only way, it's the only way that we will truly ever change. You can't leave her just being like, I'm going to do this. It's the only way that you will ever change. It's through the experiential belief in the ongoing, undeserved, full and final and forever love of Jesus for you. It's experiencing that every day. I mean, in the same way, if you wanted to become a humble person, what do you do? You don't surround yourself with egomaniacs. Right, just so you feel good about yourself. You wouldn't do that. Why? Because you're not going to change. You're actually going to think you're pretty humble. You're just comparing yourself to the wrong people. I mean, the best way to become humble is to surround yourself with humble people, and then you see how prideful you are, really. 
In the same way, if you want to love like Jesus, you have to immerse yourself in Jesus. You have to experience daily his love for you, not just in some weird intellectual gymnastics sort of way, but when you see how daily you offend God and how you betray Jesus or or wrong Jesus or deny Jesus or whatever, and yet when you come to Jesus, when he burns the charcoal fire in front of your face again, right, you get to hear his words of restoration that he is loving you in the moment still. See, the ongoing experience of Jesus' love for you empowers you to love people who have denied you, who said they don't even know you, who have betrayed you, who've Turn their back on you. You can begin to love people here like, that that seems too hard. See, in the denial and restoration of Peter, I think that's a walking example for our own lives. We see that it's not isolated to his situation, but it's it's a part of our life as well. And that will, honestly, guys, that'll empower us. That'll empower you this week to to love your um, coworker or your roommate or your colleague or your fellow student, your friend or family member, or your backstabbing friend or family member. This is why, because when they wrong you, you don't wait for them to humble themselves and move towards you, because we see that Peter didn't move towards Jesus, although he was the one who should have humbled himself because he wronged Jesus, but Jesus moved towards him, and Jesus continually moves towards you on a daily basis so that you can lovingly move towards the people that are most difficult to love in your life, people who have most hurt you with their own abandonment of you. This will affect the way you love your spouse this week. Because when your spouse wrongs you, when you feel that they are in the wrong and that they're the one who needs to change, you see in a story like this that Jesus wasn't the one who needed to change. We were. And yet he daily loves us. This will change the way you love your kids. When our kids defy us or disobey us for the 100th time, even when our intentions for them are so good, we see how we defy Jesus for the 100th time, yet he lays down his life for us and now are laying down our lives for our kids and not shaming them, but restoring them actually is pointing them to Jesus, the greatest lover of the world. And as we do this, guys, this glorifies Jesus in the world. It changes the world. Uh, you might not be familiar with the name Tertullian. Um, I, I don't know if that's on you know, the list of short names, what you're going to name your kid in the future, Tertullian. Um, maybe it'll make a comeback. I don't know. But he, um, he lived and he ministered in the early years of the third century AD. Uh, fun fact, uh, he was actually the first man to use the word Trinity to describe God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So tip of the hat to Tertullian. Uh, but he lived and wrote in a time where people were really opposed to Christianity in the you know, and, and this was really intensifying. And so um, Tertullian was an apologist, okay? He was brilliant, uh, which is to say that he devoted his life to defending the Christian faith. And he was quick to point out that it wasn't any particular theological or philosophical argument that would ultimately persuade non-Christians about the truth of Jesus. He believed that. He said, rather, it was the seemingly inexplicable love that Christians had for one another that initially baffled and finally captivated non-Christians. This will be on the screen. In a memorable quote from Tertullian, he said this, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. No tragedy causes trouble in our brotherhood. 
Bethany are a Christian family, okay? And the family possessions, which generally destroy brotherhood among you, referring to people who aren't Christians, create fraternal bonds among us. One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are in common among us except our wives. I love that he threw that in there at the end. Just to clarify people, okay? Um, great job. Isn't that beautiful, though? Isn't that so good? This wasn't like fictitious, otherworldly, like Narnia stuff. This was real life. Real life. And in a society like his, I mean, social class was way more important than people like us even give credit for it. See, I'm convinced, guys, that our primary job as Christians, your literal job this week, day in and day out, is to remain in how God feels about you, not how you feel about God. Basically, to rest in God's love for you and not determine your life and your livelihood based on your, however you've determined it, love for God. Not the driving to Vegas kind of stuff. That's not, that's not how this works. We must never get this reversed. We are defined by God's love for us, and we are defined by God's love for us. We love like he has loved us. And when we do that, we live like these third century people that Tertullian is talking about, and the world notices. Let me just say this. If you feel at loss in a city like Corvallis, and you're, you're trying to prove with your life and your words, through you know, knowledge or debate that Jesus really is God and that people really need him. Like, do that, like, like work at that, you know? If you feel like you're getting nowhere, though, and you're really discouraged, take heart in a passage like this and see that, that one of the greatest evangelistic tools, if you will, that we have, guys, is our love for one another. And I'm not creating that, Jesus created that. It's built into the very fabric for what it means to be a Christian. You guys, it's my prayer that as a church we would see the glory of God in the cross, which displays the love of God for us in Jesus. May we be conduits of Jesus' glorious love because we are loved by Jesus to love like Jesus and therefore bring glory to Jesus. Pray with me.